Good morning, Northgate. Welcome to our live stream. Oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> my name is Garrett. I'm the youth pastor here, and this is my firstborn, Dylan, that uh, many have been asking to see. He has a little something to say. That's just heavy breathing, Dylan. Okay. So i got a couple announcements for you guys before we get started. Um, first off, uh, our condolences to uh, Brenda P. and her family. Uh, for the passing of her mother. Please keep her and her family in your prayers. Uh, the ABA annual general business meeting is going to be meeting online on April 14th. Uh, if you want to attend, I'm sure you can just get the link whenever before. But if you would like to represent Northgate as a delegate, um, please contact the board before their meeting on Wednesday. So that gives you, you know, two or three days. Uh, so if you'd like to represent Northgate, get on that soon. Um, we'd like you guys to prayerfully consider uh, a few ministry opportunities we here have at the church um, for, uh, for deacon, uh, for board vice moderator, trustee lead, a text for sound, and the live stream. We still need a few of those. Um, and delivery of sermon CDs. Uh, we need some people to help deliver those. So please uh, prayerfully consider um, those if you feel you are led to take part in one of those ministries. Um, uh, Dylan would like to remind everybody about the Logos program, which is an alternative Christian education program. Uh, it, you get taught the, uh, the regular Alberta curriculum. It runs through um, public schools. Um, it's running in six schools right now with three, uh, including junior high programs. Uh, it's only $20 membership. If you want more information, you can contact Charlene Monroe or look up any school with the, that's running the Logos program and give them a call. And uh, I believe that's all for announcements. Uh, I'm just going to pray before we get moving on. God, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're in control and that we can, we can hear from your word this morning together. God, we pray as, uh, as Mark comes up to speak that we would hear your words, your truth um, through his teaching. And God, uh, as well as when we hear uh, Rod speak during the Kingdom Kids moment. God, we pray that you'd be changing our minds and our hearts through this experience. God, through this, uh, through this live stream. <laughs> and God, that uh, oh, we thank you so much for the children in the church. And we look forward to the time when we can see them all together. Yeah, God, we thank you for all you have done, for all you will do, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 26, as we continue our series uh, sort of that's leading us up to Easter, uh, just looking at the final days and now more, probably more accurately, the final hours of Jesus' life before the cross. And as we come to this passage, uh, we sort of reached a tipping point here. The moment, you know, that Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own when his disciples have all fled into the darkness and Jesus has been arrested and delivered into the hands of sinful men and his suffering has started. And his trials before the cross 
have begun. And if you'd like to follow along with me as I read, you can in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57, we'll be going all the way to verse 68. It says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that you would even now prepare our hearts uh, to hear from you. As we open your word, as we look at this account of Christ standing trial, Lord, we just pray that, um, that Lord, you would just speak truth into our own hearts about who Christ is. And that, Lord, as we just reflect on not just this moment, but all, all the moments leading Jesus to the, Christ, uh, to the cross and beyond, that, Lord, uh, in these days before Easter, you would just make us just mindful of all that Jesus did on our behalf, uh, of all the suffering, of all the trials, of all the things that he had to go through in order to purchase our salvation and to offer us forgiveness. Um, may we not miss these things, but may we hold them close. May we remember them. Uh, Lord, as we approach Good Friday and eventually, Lord, Resurrection Sunday, uh, with joy in our hearts, knowing, uh, Lord, the cost, um, the cost of the cross uh, that purchased um, our redemption. So, Lord, yeah, be with us in our time this morning. Send your Holy Spirit uh, to lead us, to teach us, to guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was uh, A.W. Tozer who once wrote something that sort of always, I guess, given me pause when I read it. He says, right now we live in a mixed up world. Some people get headlines who, if truth were known, would be getting striped suits in a prison somewhere. And there are other worthy persons who are completely ignored in this world. And if the truth were known, they should be on the front covers of the news magazines next week. And yet, that's the reality of our world, and even more so today than when he wrote that. There just, there seems to be a lack of justice. Our world just doesn't seem fair 
In fact, it, at times it seems actually quite the opposite of fair. And, you know, we learn it at an early age, uh, you know, this, this idea of fairness. I remember my own kids, and when they were young, man, the complaining sometimes. You would just like, you know, how come they get a story when I have to go to bed, and they got more milk than I did, and why do we have to share the last piece of cake? It's, I mean, it's enough to drive you crazy. But you know what? It doesn't always get better when we get older because try a few of these on for size. Like, you know, how come that person can eat anything they want and not gain weight, whereas I get fat just walking past a buffet? That's not fair. Uh, you know, why is one person so good at sports and I can't even chew gum and walk at the same time? That's not fair. You know, how come some people can learn things so quickly? How come some people are so talented and gifted in, in ways that I want to be? You know, why do some people just seem to have it so easy when I have to struggle so much? It just, some days it doesn't seem fair. And it upsets us, especially when we feel like we're the ones who are sort of ending up on the short end of the, of the fairness stick. But you know what, when it comes to unfairness, you know what, when it comes to just a plain old injustice, there has never been sort of a more egregious example of injustice than what happens in our passage this morning. When it comes to life not being fair, nothing compares to the day that Jesus was put on trial. When the judge of all creation had to sit in judgment, or, uh, being judged. You know, when innocence was declared guilty, when the truth of God himself was declared blasphemy. It's just not fair. And even when you hear that, you know, a person might be tempted to think when they read through this passage that, that you know, things were so terribly unfair that God must have somehow lost control of this situation, lost his grip, you know, um, that all of this was just a big understanding and things were just getting out of hand, spiraling out of control. And yet, you know, when you read your Bible here, you, it tells us very clearly that all of this unfairness that we see unfolding in, this, in our passage was happening for a reason. This injustice that we're going to read about was all part of God's purpose and plan. In fact, if, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 26, you can actually look at, at some of that evidence. Uh, Jesus says in verse 2 to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then skip down to verse 31, where Jesus says, says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We see here that these were not unexpected events for Jesus. Jesus knew what was going to happen. In fact, he knew, he not only predicted it, he even planned on these things taking place. But even more than that, it wasn't just Jesus who spoke about these things happening, but the word of God gives testimony as well. Matthew 26 again, verse 24. Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written about him. Verse 53, he says, do you not think I cannot appeal to my Father? He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And again in verse 56, Jesus says, All this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The Bible reveals that God is in full control of what is happening here. 
Even as Jesus is arrested and put on trial, Scripture is being fulfilled and the will of God is being done. And that trial that Jesus goes through here is what we're going to be examining in more detail this morning. And it begins in Matthew 26, in verse 57, by telling us this. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And I guess what I always find sort of interesting when I read that is that when Jesus shows up, everybody is already there. Uh, you know, the time that this was taking place was probably somewhere between 1 and 3 in the morning. You know, not the time when most people were up and out of bed. And I don't think the high priest was the kind of guy to, you know, to run all-night parties for his friends. And yet, this night, no one needs to be called to show up. No one's caught sleeping. No one is surprised. Everyone is dressed and assembled and ready to go when Jesus arrives. Because they were expecting it. They were planning on it. In fact, this was the moment when these men, that they had been waiting for, they had been dreaming about this moment when they finally had Jesus in their hands. Because they were excited. And they had a mission. And their mission was crystal clear, as we're told in verse 59, where it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. That was the purpose for this meeting. The purpose for all that they were doing. And yet, in their haste to put Jesus to death, these men were actually breaking many of their own rules and regulations to try and do so. Uh, I have a book, uh, well, by Charles Swindoll. And he actually puts together just a short list of some of the irregularities of this illegal trial. To name just a few, he says, criminal cases at that time could only be tried during the day. They could never be tried sort of overnight. Criminal cases could also not be tried during the Passover season. Um, that was frown, or illegal as well. Uh, criminal cases could not, oh, sorry, also by law, a verdict, only a verdict of not guilty could cause a case to be finished on the same day that it was begun. Uh, the reasoning there was the court was required to, to give, some, give it some time. Literally, they were to sleep on it before they were to issue a guilty verdict. Criminal cases also could only be heard in a public setting. It was illegal to have them held in a private home. And of course, I mean, there are more breaches of the law, some of them minor, some of them more major. Uh, but it just gives you an idea of how one-sided this trial was going to be. Because the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law, they needed the appearance of a trial. They, they needed to sort of be seen to go through the motions. And they wanted it to look like Jesus had a fair heating, hearing. But the truth of the matter was this. This was more of a lynch mob. And as we heard, they only had one goal. And it wasn't to seek the truth. Their only goal was to seek enough evidence to put Jesus to death. But there, they would actually find they have a slight problem. Because verse 60 continues, But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. They found no evidence for Jesus' guilt. Now I want you to just think about the incredibleness of those words that they could find no fault in Jesus. There is no evidence of a crime or wrongdoing or even the smallest sin that they can pin on Jesus. And keep in mind, 
that these men had been watching him for years. For three years of his ministry, they've been angry at him, and they've been watching his every move. Three years, they've been looking for the slightest misstep that Jesus might make. For three years, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they tried to trap him with his own words. They tried to back him in a corner. They, they asked him tough questions, hoping that he would somehow make a mistake. And yet the result of all of their efforts over those three years was that they had nothing. And again, keep in mind, this is a time when, you know, taking a Sunday stroll or wearing a poly cotton blend t-shirt were, were enough to shame you. You know, they had so many different rules. And yet they found nothing. And to me, that's amazing. Because just imagine it was you. Just imagine you're a public figure. And people are around you all the time watching you. You know, you have paparazzi constantly documenting your every move. You have news reporters trying to dig up some scandal to sell their papers. And then add to that that, the, you know, a group of the most powerful men in the nation were actively trying to trip you up and bring you down. You know, they audit your bank accounts. They check your taxes. They interrupt you at work. They harass you at home. They question your every move, criticize your every decision. They interview your family and your friends, and they talk to the people you grew up with, you know, looking for dirt and looking for skeletons in your closet. Under that kind of scrutiny, none of us would survive something like that unscathed. Yet that's just what Jesus is facing here. It was intense scrutiny, years in the planning, and yet even after all of that, they found nothing. Every rock was overturned, and yet no evidence was found to convict Christ of even the smallest offense. So when a legitimate search showed nothing, we're told they actively began for the illegitimate. You know, they, they brought in people, you know, to make up lies about Jesus, false witnesses, to say things that weren't even true. But even then, even with people lying about Jesus, the lies didn't stick. So finally, in the last-ditch effort, they come up with this. Verse 60 says, At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And what is happening there is they're, they're bringing in some guys who take some of Jesus' words out of context. Um, if you want to actually look at the passage that they're talking about, uh, it's in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is answering these people's demand for a sign, and he uses the imagery of a temple to point to his own death and resurrection. It was not a threat against the actual temple in Jerusalem at all. But these men never let facts get in the way of their desire. So they twist what Jesus said to imply something he never intended. And keep in mind, this is actually a serious charge. In that culture, a threat against the temple was seen as treason. And yet Mark's gospel, in Mark 14, 58, it tells us that even then the two accounts of these false witnesses did not agree. So once again, the case falls apart. And clearly these men had nothing. And I want you to picture this. 
The moment these men had been waiting for for so long was finally here. They had Jesus in their custody. This upstart teacher who had embarrassed them and threatened their power, that he was finally in their hands. This was their one chance to be rid of Jesus once and for all, rid of him for good. But now that they had him, they couldn't find a reason to get rid of him. And it must have been infuriating. Especially because at that point, we're told that in all of this time, Jesus wasn't saying a word. Verse 62 says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. It's at this point you kind of wonder why Jesus wasn't talking. Because remember, every other time that these men had tried to trap Jesus, he always sort of turned it back on them and made them look like fools. And there was... You know, no argument, no dispute, no problem, no circumstance. There was no question that they had thrown at Jesus, had thrown his way, that he couldn't handle. But now here was Jesus. He, he was wrongfully arrested. There was no evidence to convict him. He was taking part in an illegal trial where those who were sitting in judgment had, had, were breaking the very laws they were trying to convict Jesus with. I mean, this is a situation where even a first-year law student could have gotten this case thrown out of court. And yet Jesus remained silent. Because we need to see Jesus' silence here as divine. Jesus is allowing this to happen. He's allowing the scriptures to be fulfilled. He is allowing this injustice to happen to him. And in the end, Jesus will allow them to send him to the cross, even if he has to incriminate himself in his eyes of the, his accusers to do so. And that's exactly what he does. In verse 63, And the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. And in my mind, I kind of pictured Jesus sort of thinking, Finally, like, finally you said it. Finally you got something right. Because I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And even though that confession alone might have been enough for these men to convict him, Jesus goes even further. Verse 64 again, Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus, with those words, he's practically baiting these guys. Uh, you can almost see the steam coming out of the ears of the high priest when Jesus says that. I actually remember my, in grade two, we had a teacher, Mrs. Stewart. And for some reason, of which I'm almost sure I'm completely innocent, for some reason, the kids in that class knew exactly how to push her buttons and drive her completely crazy. There were some kids who knew exactly what to say to set her off. And they did all the time. And she would lose it. Uh, she actually had to take stress year the, the next year. It was so bad. Uh, again, innocent of all that things. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He not only gives Caiaphas an answer, he gives him an answer that he knew would make him crazy. Because Jesus knew in his rage, Caiaphas would settle for nothing less than Jesus' blood. In his anger, he would now not rest until he saw Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, look at verse 65. Then the high priest 
tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. When Caiaphas hears Jesus' testimony, he tears his robes. Uh, that's basically the Jewish way of saying, I have just lost my mind. And he yells, it's blasphemy. And you know what? It really would have been blasphemy if it went for one little detail. Because you see, every word that Jesus actually spoke was truth. And for me, that's the sticker here. Again, I think Jesus turns it around on these guys. And people often think that Jesus' fate was sealed with a kiss by Judas in the garden. But it would be far more accurate to say that Jesus' fate was sealed with him speaking truth. And this Kegger old court was so caught up in trying to find Jesus guilty, they missed the truth of God when he spoke. And it all really kind of means that, just as Chuck Swindoll says, Jesus was declared guilty, but he was never proven guilty. And the irony in all of this is that in their blind efforts to find Jesus guilty, all they really managed to do was allow Jesus to reveal who he truly was. Jesus confesses that, you know, himself as the Christ and the Son of God. He tells them that the one being judged will one day sit as judge over all, and that the one who seems defeated and standing powerless before them will one day have ultimate victory and the place of power sitting at his Father's side. Jesus tells them the truth. But the truth no longer mattered. Because their minds had already been made up. And in verse 66, he says, What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And for Jesus, at that moment, there was no going back. Um, the cross is a certainty. It's only a matter of time. And there would actually be other trials for Jesus to face. In fact, there would be six of them in total. Before the night was over, Jesus would stand before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, and before Pilate, not once, but twice. Six trials. And in each, they would judge him, but none would find any guilt. But they would all do their part in sending Jesus to the cross. And each, each one of them would add to the injustice that is being heaped upon Jesus. And each would do what was necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled. And as we reflect on this moment in Jesus' life, as we look at the truth of Jesus on trial, I want to close by asking us to think about three important things. Uh, three lessons, I think, that we can learn um, that are in this pastor that are important to our lives as believers. And the first lesson is, I think, a lesson that is so relevant for our time, and that's just we need to be clear about our source of truth. Or to make that even clearer, I would say make the Bible, the Word of God, your source of truth for living, and I would add for discernment. And I say that because Jesus was convicted here not by facts or evidence or proof or even truth. He was convicted by a popular vote. Jesus was convicted based upon an opinion poll taken of a majority of men who basically hated him. But we live in a time right now where if enough people say something's true, everybody thinks it's true. And again, more and more, we're living in that kind of world where truth matters less and less, but opinion and emotion matters more and more. It's such a reflection of the time Paul, Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, where he says, The time will come 
When men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. And again, we can see those words coming true right before our eyes today. There's even a news story out this week about some churches that have now rejected the Bible as their source of truth because it no longer matches their church's culture. The church is just too woke for the Bible. So they've rejected it. And yet something we need to know about truth is that truth does not change. That's what makes it truth. Truth is not something that can be different for each person. It's not something, you know, that is determined by popular opinion. It's not something determined by Gallup polls. It's not something that people get to decide for themselves. Truth is truth. Someone once said, you can sincerely sincerely believe a cat is a dog, but it's still a cat. Truth is truth no matter what. I still remember Pastor Zig when I was under his teaching here long, many years ago. I remember him standing in the pulpit and saying, the Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And as believers who are, you know, we are to be people who stand upon the truth. We're not swept away by sort of every wave and whim of society's opinion, but standing firm on the word of God. So let the Bible be your source of truth, upon which you can take a stand. And then the second thing I want you to think about from our passage, a second lesson, is this. It's the fact that Jesus was innocent and yet declared guilty so that we who are guilty will one day be declared innocent. Because you know what? One day we too will stand trial. One day we will stand before the Lord and we will have to give an account of our lives, our every deed, every thought, every careless word. And on that day, standing before our holy God, our sin and our guilt will never be more plain. But God will look at us and not see our guilt. He will see only the righteousness of Christ. And you know, usually when we talk about life not being fair, uh, we usually think of it as a bad thing. But you know what? I couldn't be more happy or more thankful that sometimes life is not fair. Because if life were fair, I would get exactly what I deserve. And Romans 6.23 says all you need to know about that, for the wages of sin is death. If I got what was fair, if I got what was coming to me, if I got what I deserved, all I would receive is death. If life were fair, all I would get is an eternity in hell separated from God. But because of Christ and because of the cross and because of the injustices that Jesus faced, one day I will get what I do not deserve. And as Romans 6, 23 continues, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's exciting. Because you know what? The kingdom of God is not a kingdom that's based on what you think is fair. It's not what, uh, based on what I think is fair. The kingdom of God is a kingdom based on grace. And grace is not fair. Grace is unreasonably generous to the point of almost being scandalous. And what happened to Jesus wasn't fair. But it happened for a reason. Jesus was declared guilty so that one day we might be found righteous before God. And then the final thing I want to talk to you about this morning is that there's a good chance that Jesus is still on trial in many of our lives. There may be some people even listening today who are still trying to figure out, what do I do with Jesus? Because every one of us needs to make a decision about who Jesus truly is. 
And you know, we know that if you were to ask people on the street about who Jesus is, you're likely to get all kinds of different answers. Some think he's a moral teacher. Some think he's the founder of an ancient religion. Some say he's a great prophet, on and on. And yet we know as flattering as any of those, many of those answers might be, any answer that limits Jesus to only being a man is an answer that is wrong. Because the world may say a lot of things about Jesus. But the only true and clear answer to who Jesus truly is is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died on the cross for sins, but was raised on the third day to bring us hope and eternal life, because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And once you've heard that truth, you have to decide, what are you going to do with it? Because making a choice about Jesus is the most important decision that any of us will ever make in our entire lives. So what answer will you offer? What verdict will you give? How do you answer the question in your life, who is Jesus? Can you truly say that he is your Savior and he is your Lord and he is your God? As a pastor, I, it is my desire that we would know Jesus on those terms. And if you want to make that truth your own today, I would ask you just to take a moment to talk to God in prayer. Tell him that you know you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross in your place and ask him to save you and come into your heart and transform your life and to bring to you the promise of hope and love and life and joy and peace that is available to you because of Christ as you begin to live in a relationship with him. If you pray that prayer and trust in Christ, that promise is yours. You can make that verdict about Jesus in your life today. And I hope that you have. Because I've said this before, but as a pastor, it is my desire for people to know God's very best in their life. And I'm convinced that God's best for your life and my life and everyone else's life is found in knowing Jesus and living in the truth of who he is. And that's not something that's fair. That's not something that we deserve. That is not justice being done. That is grace. And it is grace that was given because Jesus was willing to face his trial, to endure injustice, and go to the cross to offer us salvation so that we could be declared righteous. Let's pray. Lord God, in these days, as we, well, as we approach Easter, um, as we as a church body are sort of following in Jesus' footsteps on his way to the cross, Lord, I realize... So much of what we're seeing here is hard for us to look at. Um, there's injustice, there's cruelty, there's anger, there's hatred. It's like the worst that humanity has to offer on display. And yet, Lord, you took the worst that we had to offer and you turned it into the very means of salvation to offer us your very best through the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is when we offered him injustice, you offer to us righteousness. When we offered to him hate, you demonstrated your great love for us. When we offered Jesus nothing but brokenness and suffering on a cross, you took that in order to make it the means of our make, making us whole. Lord, even, Lord, we took his innocence and declared him guilty, and yet you took our sin when you laid down your life on our behalf. Lord, we declared Jesus guilty. 
even though he was innocent, so that we who are guilty could be declared innocent and righteous before you. Lord, that's a powerful lesson that I pray you would help us grow in understanding of. And that, Lord, we would just hold on to that truth, that, that Jesus, who he is, his life, his righteousness, his teachings, uh, his person, that, Lord, we would live out that truth in our lives each and every moment, and that we would make that truth our own, that, Lord, we would have made that verdict in our life to make Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. And that we wouldn't just be standing on the sidelines and not making a choice about Jesus at all. And Lord, that's what the cross accomplished. Uh, Lord, that's why you came, and that's why we want to make this truth our own. Because Lord, as we said, life isn't fair. But Lord, grace isn't fair. But it is offered freely and it is sufficient for all that we need. Lord, thank you for offering us grace. Um, even though we offered your son nothing but injustice. Um, yeah, help us to live out this truth. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.